Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 39, being recorded on Monday, July 25th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, we have a real treat tonight, so we're just going to jump right into it. Tonight, we have a leader of one of the largest e-commerce sites in North America. We'll have to ask him. I I definitely know it's top five, maybe even uh, higher than that, uh, from the internet retailer list. I've known him for over five years, and he's been at a who's who of e-commerce companies, eBay, Amazon, Groupon. Cosmo for those old school folks, and he is currently the Chief Digital Officer at Staples. Let's welcome Fazil Masood to the Jason and Scott Show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. How are you, Fazil? Doing good. How are you? Good. I, I know you're bi-coastal. Which, uh, which coast are you on this evening? The beautiful, warm East Coast in Boston. Ah, yeah. At least we don't have raging forest fires like you guys do over on the West Coast. I guess you're in yeah. Seattle and you don't, you don't have force. It rains so much, you, that's a benefit. <laughs> the timber's too moist there. <laughs> the timber's oh, too moist. It just kind of we're, smokes. We're, we're appreciating the rain these days. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, we really appreciate you being on the show. And I know you're an avid listener. And, you know, we'd love to start these off with a little bit of background. So so start us off um, on your e-commerce journey. Where did you – how did you get into e-commerce? And take us through all those companies I mentioned. Hey, uh, thanks. Thanks for having me again. Um, so, so the journey began probably about 17 years. It's, it's really long time ago. And I would say, um, with one of the companies you mentioned Cosmo.com and, uh, I got introduced uh, to somebody there and ended up really loving the energy and business at Cosmo, uh, raised, we raised about 350 million back then from Amazon, SoftBank and others. And we're off to the races, uh, from the internet to your door in an hour. And that lasted about two years. And, Soon thereafter, Cosmo had to shut down because the internet was not quite ready. Um, I fell in love with e-commerce, so ended up uh, going to Amazon to launch uh, the Target.com business as Amazon powered the fulfillment and the web store for Target. Um, And from there, did a stint at Drugstore.com to run, uh, launch their consumables business with Amazon and also uh, ran a few supply chain inventory planning functions. Uh, did a short stint at uh, William Sonoma. Wasn't really my thing. Uh, was asked to come back to Amazon to come run uh, Hardline's inventory planning and product management uh, back in, I think it was 04 or 05. Stayed there for over five, six years or so. Uh, did probably six jobs running different businesses, launching businesses. Some of them you may know Amazon Basics, Warehouse Deals, um, Amazon Trade In, Amazon Rentals. Amazon services, mobile electronics, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, decided to go to eBay and launch their, uh, you know, their biggest initiative, I would say, in many years after PayPal, which was GSP, uh, Global Shipping Platform, which allowed uh, eBay to intermediate all cross-border trade into over 100 countries. I was fortunate enough to not only you know, write the architecture patent and launch the service, but also launch... Uh, Returns for eBay sellers, fast and free, which today Amazon is 
starting to call Seller Fulfilled Prime. Uh, we launched that just for the record way before. Um, and also a direct relationship with FedEx, which never existed on eBay. Uh, went to Groupon from there to launch Groupon Goods. Uh, went from a very small business to over a billion in about 15 months. And then was asked to come to Staples to be Chief Digital Officer. The role was created for me and ended up uh, really loving it here. So I've been here longer than I was combined at eBay and Groupon. And so there's a little stat. Um, people are still shocked. But I love it. Still here. And uh, it's sort of a brief history, hopefully not too long. That's perfect. A um, couple questions. The Cosmo is fascinating to me because that was probably like 99, 2000 was around that kind of, was around there. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Ninety nine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so one random question. Uh, I always I always forget you worked there. Did you know Chris Shiwajima? Did you guys work together back in the day? I did. Chris was our CMO. Okay. I, oh, I know Chris. Yeah. Yeah. You went, uh, went to Nike and so. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that there's you know so much DNA came out of Cosmo that's still out in the e-commerce world. Um, how, how do you feel now when you see Instacart and Postmates and all these guys kind of? Uh, and even Amazon Prime now implementing it, does it, how does that make you feel? You know, I feel that uh, our, our unit economics in major cities such as New York, Boston, and San Francisco were two and a half deliveries an hour. And if we charge the shipping fee, we were break even. We're mm-hmm. doing thousands of orders in New York. Uh, unfortunately, we never reached that scale in cities that we went to, which were not great decisions at the time. But, you know, as you look back, it looks like it was the right decision back then. Um, I think that... Uh, Personally, uh, we launched Staples Rush recently. Recently, you probably heard about it. Um, mm-hmm. We're in eight cities now uh, in beta. But the challenge with same-day, one- or two-hour delivery is that the basket size dictates how you get this done, and the, the size of the, the distance of the order is critical. I think that Amazon is probably the most prepared to do this because just the vast footprint. But I think retailers can do it better if they really turn every store into a fulfillment center. Unfortunately, yeah. that hasn't happened. And we're, we're doing that because that, you know, our business orders are quite large and we can afford to do that. But as for the other players, I like Instacart a lot. I just, I'm a little bit uh, concerned about the economics on how that scales, unless, of course, you know, Whole Foods or Costco buy Instacart and try to absorb the cost. Um, yeah. I think the unit economics is going to be very challenging. Okay. Um, and then when you went to Amazon, you hit on some pretty interesting things. We could probably spend a whole show talking about that. The, my favorite thing to ask ex-Amazonians is about uh, any interesting Jeff stories um, that you can tell us. Uh, I remember I was yelled at quite a bit. So there was that. Uh, what we, you know, we used to have our six-page presentations in OP1, OP2, and he would attend some of those. Uh, and sometimes show up to the WBRs. Um, but I, I remember once, which was a real lesson that I learned in the meeting, was that uh, we'd made a lot of money this one week. Uh, I used to run mobile electronics. And Jeff uh, showed up to the WBR, and I was running the WBR for all of electronics. And that week, we'd made a lot of money in GPSs. And you know, in a typical company, when you made a lot of money, you typically feel good about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with Jeff... It was more a question of why did we make so much money? And I would, didn't really go prepared to answer that part. I was just excited that a lot of other retailers were out of stock. Hence, mm-hmm. you know, our pricing rules, the way they would match pricing, were based on in-stock, out-of-stock, right? So we, we were charging whatever the price was. Uh, Jeff didn't like that and felt that that was a 
trust-busting experience for customers, as he was right. And I never thought that would end up being, uh, you know, an educational episode in front of 50 other people. You're, you're all set to do a victory lap and you get torn down. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah, we're crushing it in GPS. He's like, uh, one question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why are you making so much money? Why is the contribution profit so high? Don't do that again. And, uh, you know, it was a great lesson, right? It was a great lesson that customer trust is of the most importance and customers cannot feel that you are just because other people are out of stock or just because other people don't have that skew. If you can still price that skew closest to the best competitor, that's what you need to do. And I didn't appreciate it at the time. I felt like uh, I was beat up for a bad reason, but he was absolutely right and I was absolutely wrong. That's very cool. But there's, there's multiple instances like that, that uh, typically an episode like that, that would happen. Sometimes that'd be the nice gestures too. Yep. I always like to Great. ask the follow-up question to Scott's question, which is how long after you left Amazon did it take you to learn how to use PowerPoint? Oh my God. So, you know, this is such a great question because when I got to, when I got to eBay, it was just a shock <laughs> system. Because eBay's all, all PowerPoint all the time. Exactly. All 700 uh, consultants all over the place. These random people just showing up to meetings. And I'm like, well, who are you? Well, I'm from Bain. Oh, I'm from McKinsey. Well, why are you here? Oh, because I am doing this. Well, what does this person do? Because, you know, at Amazon, if, if you need a consultant, you're fired because you, you, we don't need you. So there's no such thing. Um, here, on the other hand, it's, you know, at eBay, it's, it's just an army. And it's crazy that they expect you to build these PowerPoints. So I went to, back then, John, and I remember Christopher and a few others, and I said, listen, I, I, I don't know how to do this. So I need a person to build these PowerPoints for me. <laughs> so I actually hired this guy, Adam, from Bain, who was actually a consultant. I hired him full-time just to do the PowerPoints. And I can assure Bain people and definitely know how to make a PowerPoint presentation. They have that house, right? That house. <laughs> B- BCG calls it their house. Bain calls it their house. I bet, I bet McKinsey has their house. The most craziest thing, but they just populate that house with these initiatives. And somehow it all makes sense. Not. Does not at all. But I tried to go down the six-page thing, too. I actually presented my first uh, um, shipping platform um, strategy document uh, over six pages. And that... John Donahoe read. I don't think anybody else read. So not the best experience, but you know what? I learned how to at least read PowerPoints and know how to improvise when you don't have the answers. Nice. And uh, Fazal, some sort of fun news. We're, we're recording this the week of the uh, 25th, and uh, Dollar Shave Club just got purchased by Unilever for over a billion dollars. Did you see that? I did. I did. I'm super excited for Michael. I'm a big fan of Michael's. I've known him a while now and uh, was fortunate enough to get to know him early days and very, very happy for what he's done. And it's a true branding play. I've never seen anything like that, but uh, it's awesome. Yeah. And I do uh, friendship with Michael aside. I also am a big Michael fan. Like, did you have a sense that that was a good value for Unilever? You think that was a smart? <laughs> I don't think I'm qualified to answer that because I don't have the details on, you know, what they were doing. I know they had millions of subscribers at this time. I don't know exactly how many million, but I will say that Gillette was pretty desperate. It looked like with the kind of advertising they were doing. And and Michael's a genius when it comes to 
these things. And, and just the economics, even the pick, pack, and ship to your door, I can tell you he had optimized that and done a really, really super job in getting customers excited about the product. As far as the valuation, I can't tell if it's too high, too low. All I can say is strategically, it's a super acquisition. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sort of there with you. They they didn't disclose their their public performance, but it's it's doubtful that if you just looked at that as acquiring a book of business that that it was worth a billion dollars. But like I think a big part of that that transaction was the aqua hire of of Michael and his whole team. And you know, really just you know, the CPG industry is all rushing to sort of learn how to do direct to consumer and learn how yeah. how to do digital shopping. And I think they they felt like they could get a big jump start on that by by buying someone that was doing it really well. The scary part is Michael in the, that environment. I'm curious to see how he does because you know we're talking about probably 17 layers of people to work through. So I'm curious how he does. But he is a super you know genius in that area. But what I love about the acquisition is the fact that now they can bundle all these things: shampoo, conditioner, soap, whatever you want into this club. It's it's a real issue for PNG. And I think that it's a fantastic. I'm super excited to see it. It really revs up the industry for other players. Yep, I was personal story, especially, especially now that. You know, no, go I'm ahead. Not a big Jet fan, so with that, gives us a little bit of room. Yeah. Some good news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We like uh, good news in the e-commerce industry. Like, I feel like the uh, on the investment side, there there hadn't been a lot of really recent happy exits, and so I think that this also probably was a. Uh, a nice uh, piece of news for for a lot of other folks that are contemplating investments or are in investments in our space as well. Yeah, it's it's top ten, if not top five, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, I, I I'm still waiting to see some of the doomsday scenario from some of the investments that I've gone in with some of the names you've mentioned with uh, all the investments, but there are some that are going to scare us with what happens. But this one is spectacular. Yeah. So the first time I met Michael, my big question uh, was if he really was any good at tennis because he uh, it, uh, famously claimed he was good at tennis <laughs> on the on the video. I saw it, and he he uh, he he his humble answer is he's like, eh, I'm okay, I do all right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I know you are a squash player, if I have it right, and uh, cricket. Is that I try to? Is that hard yeah, to yeah, yeah. find a cricket match here uh, in uh, in the Pacific Northwest? Pacific Northwest, harder than the uh, Northeast. Northeast has a fair amount of cricket, um, just because, you know, the old roots of the the Brits. But uh, Pacific Northwest, a little bit harder, but there are clubs and and groups that play. So I try to get out as much as I can. Um, But, uh, you know, uh, not many players out there that fully understand the game. So we try to find some immigrants to play some cricket <laughs> at first i was thinking like that can't work there's not cricket in the pacific northwest and then it started to occur to me wait a minute that's a sport that, that there's like two and four day versions of with a lot of breaks for drinking in the <laughs> middle and it suddenly occurred to me that's the perfect sport for the pacific northwest well there's there's tea time there's there's uh there's tea breaks <laughs> and there's uh lunch breaks and all these other breaks but we don't play that version we play the four hour version which gotcha. is uh, which is called the 20 so it's uh, fairly quick. I know we get a really bad rap for the five day version of the of the game, but yeah, uh, you I'm get to wear the little white sweater. <laughs> I don't. We're pretty casual, although I do okay. love that sweater. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a Doctor Who fan, and one of the Doctor Who's always wore a cricket sweater. It's kind of that's how I learned about it. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so we covered Amazon in your background, and now you're the CDO over at Staples. Um, the other question I love to ask is, you know, what's it like competing with with Amazon? And and you have kind of an interesting perspective because you've got the inside story. You know, you know, kind of how they think and how they operate. And um, you know, tell us tell us how that is on the Staples side. Look, uh, competing with Amazon for anybody is hard because Amazon's not competing with you. Amazon's competing with the customer for the customer. And when you are dealing with a company that's fearing its customer and not its competitor, it's a different ballgame. Um, you're very tactical where they're looking at you know, the, the, the Uber picture, the, you know, what happens 20 years from now. So the challenge that retail faces today and, you know, being at Staples is that we're a little bit fortunate, I would say, because uh, we deal with a slightly different customer. 85% of our customers on staples.com are businesses. They're not consumers, although our consumer business is growing and growing well. But the B2B business is uh, slightly a different model to what Amazon does, although they have launched a Amazon for business and, you know, for years they've been selling to businesses. Uh, and staplesadvantage.com is, as you know, pretty much all mid-market and enterprise. So we face a slightly different challenge compared to, you know, the likes of Walmart and Target and et cetera, who are just deadlocked in competition with them. Um, as far as the differences and how you compete, I think that unless you have, you know, unrelenting focus on the customer experience, which we've spent the last three years building out a lot of the technology ourselves, revamping staples.com multiple times and iterating on our, all our properties, mobile kiosk and desktop and even our direct sales model, uh, we've made a lot of, lot of improvements, but I think that this is, you know, kind of, as Jeff would say, still day one. We have a long way to go to compete with Amazon. I don't know if that answers your question, but at a high level, it's going to remain challenging for many years to come. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, when we talk to omni-channel folks, one of the biggest differentiators is stores, and that's Jason's passion, so I'll let him jump in on stores. Yeah, I think you even alluded to it earlier in the conversation that um, uh, fulfillment from stores is one one potential interesting model. I'm I'm just curious, like you guys have over, uh, like fifteen hundred stores, is that right? Is we do, we do, and we we started uh, we launched Staples Rush um, in eight cities. That's just the beginning, and uh, we've already seen good interest on in our sort of beta A/B test uh, that we're doing in those cities. Um, we think that the future of stores is, is, a, is a showroom, a, a meeting point, a return center, a shipping center, uh, a pickup point, and uh, a, a fulfillment center. That's, that's what it is because we are not going to see those customers walk in to just browse. The notion of browsing for a category like ours is dead. It, it doesn't exist. It's a very convenience-based, very targeted experience. And we've embraced showrooming. You know, a lot of our customers price match. We match all prices a lot of our customers want to return to the store when they've bought online we do that we're fully integrated omnichannel today and you know close to 15 percent of our transactions are click and collect and we embrace that right we we love that our best customers are omnichannel customers i saw an article where you guys are doing um kind of co-work space or work sharing there's a lot of different names for it um so say a little bit more about that i thought that was kind of interesting yeah i mean you know as you know uh over the last three, four years, we've tested a whole bunch of stuff. You've probably seen it, heard about it, heard, of, heard from me or other people. I think that there, there is, with WeWork and how it's exploded, uh, we know that there's an opportunity for small startups and you know, small entrepreneurs looking for space to just utilize. 
So one of the tests was with Workday to see you know, how that could work out within a store, within a store, where mm-hmm. uh, our customers can utilize the space. It's very early days, Scott. Very, very early days. Um, just testing it out at this stage. Don't know the future at all. Uh, depending on what the store strategy ends up being with you know, our new appointed president of stores, I will let him answer those questions. But I think that uh, I would say it's very early, testing it out, no real results to provide at this point. Okay. I've never, um, I don't know where they're being tested, but um, what's it look like? Is it like in the middle of the store? Is it in a back corner? Is it kind of like a different section? How, how is it kind of, is it cubes? I saw, it I, open? I saw render, I saw renderings also. So uh, excuse my ignorance, but I saw renderings as well because it is in the store's domain. Um, it was in the middle from what I saw and uh, space carved out for specifically for uh, workstations where you can have, you know, high speed Wi-Fi. You can, you can, have your coffee and enjoy your time in there while you get printing done, shipping done, take conference calls, do video conferencing, things like that. So it's, it's pretty good space. It's just, as you can imagine, not cheap. Yeah. It seems pretty handy. If you need like some Twizzlers, you just go to that back corner of the store, open some Twizzlers. If you need some staples, they're right. You know, you just got like the world's office supplies right there at your fingertips. Yes. (laughs) That too. (laughs) That too. (laughs) That as well. Yeah. Let's see. I, uh, when I first saw that announcement, my initial thought was, man, there are going to be some stores in the portfolio that that makes perfect sense with, for, where there's a good overlap of the value of the rent and demand for the office spacing, um, and that it would make perfect sense, but that it's probably not something that's a perfect fit for 1,500 staple stores. Um, absolutely not. Don't see that happening to all the stores for sure. Um, which ones do we pick? I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming urban stores. That's where traffic is. And, you know, people are in a rush to do things. Uh, we are a full service suite though. Like if you look at a FedEx office and you look at a staple store, we provide above and beyond any services that they do. You can use our machines. You can print on demand. You can print virtually. You can literally get business cards in an hour, I think, hour and a half, something like that, where, um, from the internet to your, you know, to your pickup point. Nobody does that. We are the leader in those things. It's just, uh, the messaging has to be out there a little bit more. And, um, I don't know if you've been to design.staples.com that, that team also is one that I manage and we, we power signs, banners, business cards, and soon to be documents all delivered to your store nearby, um, in an instant. So those are all things we're trying to power our businesses with. So we, you know, having a workstation there doesn't hurt. Yeah, no, very cool. Uh, when I think about the some of the advantages of stores, like we covered one of the big ones, which is uh, you know that 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 inventory location that's close to the customer um, and the opportunity to ship from stores. Most of my clients, when they first moved to that model, though the the hiccup they run into is it turns out it's much harder than most people realize to get your inventory accurate in the stores, and so that that ends up being problem number one. Um, did you guys run into those same problems, the sort of item not found when you yeah. started? I would say inventory integrity has been pretty high for us. We call those scratch orders. Uh, we haven't seen a large amount of scratches um, because we're pretty um, we're pretty conservative in our display versus inventory. We we fulfill our promise pretty well. In fact, there was a there was a survey or test done on all the stores. I think we came in second or something like that, first or second, in terms of uh, availability of click and collect and the experience itself. Of course, there's things we 
could do better. But uh, you know, having the product ready without any hassles for your pickup in an hour, it's, I think the r- recent promise we gave was two hours, which is pretty good. Nice. Um, and no, we haven't, seen, we haven't seen a huge amount. I think you'll see that experience more so in large variation products like clothing, sizes, colors. We don't have to deal with a lot of that, as you can imagine. We're having computers, laptops, printers, ink being picked up. Yep. And there's inventory available. There's usually not a lot of ink that's scattered into the dressing rooms, hopefully. Exactly. Um, what another thing that's always interesting to me about stores is sort of the converse problem is all these great digital experiences have have sort of changed fundamental shopping behavior. And now, you know, you're you're buying some new considered item like a, a multifunction printer or something like that you're very likely to want to see ratings and reviews and see a lot of the the content that's now super common on your website, but is frankly a lot harder to find in your stores. Um, is part of your scope to sort of figure out how to, how to interject those digital experiences into the stores as well? Or is that, is that another yeah. area? Yeah. Have you been to the Amazon store in Seattle? Uh, I think Scott and I both have been there now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So did you notice they have the reviews right on the product? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that that is an interesting concept. We we've depended on our mobile app to be the provider. You know, where you scan the item and we can give you the reviews that we have to be the you know the the entry point of getting whatever you want. We do have a lot of activity on phones in our stores. We do tons of price matching and and customer sort of answers to questions in the store. Um, it's an expensive process to get every single item especially with items with back to school and others that are going in and out of the store if you have a very small inventory pool much more achievable to have those reviews there updated every month pretty difficult non-trivial problem if you've got the number of SKUs we have changing gears every single quarter and having reviews so we prefer to depend on our customers which is a bit of a burden you would say but at the same time they've got a phone that's sort of the extension of their hand to just look up the item and the reviews are right there. Yep, yep. That seems like the most common solution that's working well out there. Like, I guess the one challenge is depending on the category, you know, in, in some categories that might get you 25% of your customers or 20% of your customers, but it's not that 100% solution. I keep predicting I that, that digital fact tags might might be the solution, but they never seem to happen. Yeah, very, very expensive. Extremely expensive. Think about deploying those in 1,700 stores. Yep. No, I get it. I, there's a significant capital cost there, but in theory, there'd be a commensurate labor savings as you, you know you you stop having having associates run around and and updating the paper fact tags. That's fair. I know in the past this is something the retail team has looked at. I don't have the exact answer yeah. to why they decided to or not to, but it would be a good question I can ask them too as far as why not. Yeah. No. Just an interesting thing. One um one area I always love to chat about, and you you've had a long career, and you know more about this than I do. So when you went to Groupon, it was kind of funny. You you I remember you telling me I'm going to build a marketplace, and everyone's like, "What? That's like the half off place. How are you going to build a marketplace?" And you built a you know a multi billion dollar marketplace very quickly there. Um, that ironically, people still don't really know is there. It's kind of funny uh, when I talk to Wall Street analysts, they're like, "What are the top five marketplaces?" And I always list Groupon Goods as kind of like number three or number four, depending on how you count jet. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, so that, that's kind of interesting. So hopefully listeners now know, um, but you're, you're there at Staples. Um, you know, I know you guys have talked about kind of a quote unquote marketplace Staples exchange. What's the, um, give us an update on that and what's the, the, the pros, cons, challenges, advantages of doing something like that. Yeah. Great question, Scott. So, um, our definition of marketplace when I arrived there was not, not your definition. It was truly a dropship platform. And we were traditionally with Commerce Hub when, I, when we arrived, the team arrived, and we soon thereafter moved all the assets over to a proprietary platform called Staples Exchange. Uh, we, you know, as you know, we have millions of SKUs on the platform, and uh, it now generates a significant volume of our total business across all of Staples properties. The natural next step for us is to go to a full-blown third-party marketplace where the seller record is the, the seller themselves. And uh, as you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And the, the intentions for Staples are to go down that path. Timing is still a little bit up in the air because there's a lot of priorities with all the changes that you've seen uh, at Staples. But uh, there's a lot of motivation to go down that path because it's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, yeah. Why would you not provide your customers the biggest office supply selection? Do you think, so, so let's kind of go 30,000 foot and take Staples out of the equation. Um, as a guy that's built marketplaces, when when does it make sense to build one and when does it not? Like, should Macy's have one? Should JCPenney? Should Nordstrom? Like, should apparel folks have it? Should, um, you know, you've seen, you know, should Sears have one? Should should everyone have a marketplace? And if, you know, I always get asked this question, if everyone has a marketplace and every every seller lists on every marketplace, then then what's the point? What's your, what's your, do you have a theology on that? I think that it's, it's the scope with which you have the marketplace. So if Staples, Staples for a second, we're not going to be selling, uh, you know, Nike socks on our marketplace. That's not our business. That's not our customer. So the curation of the marketplace is kind of critical. Um, but you can't compete in this world if you're not going to offer everything that your business for us, our business customer requires. So if you take, say Macy's or Nordstrom, they have finite selection that they can sell. You know, when I was at Amazon, our selection was what, 10x smaller than Marketplace back then? I don't know what it is now. But, and the growth came from Marketplace. It didn't come from just retail. So uh, to say that having a bigger selection is a bad thing, I think that would be wrong. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of, yes, you should have a Marketplace, but at the same time, you can't have a Marketplace if you don't have the right content images, reviews, curation, and served in a way where it really caters to and complements your first party selection. Just throwing up a marketplace like that, I think that's a recipe for a disaster. Because that yeah. that you've seen you've seen that. You've seen what happens with that. Yeah. Cool. We we have the same uh, theology. <laughs> Great. <laughs> that it must be wrong then. No. <laughs> No, I'm teasing. Uh, I think we have a difference of, of opinion on Jet. That's that's one thing Scott and I have a difference on. Yeah. Um, so since you bring it up, is uh, I'm presuming you're not as uh, bullish on Jet. No, not at all. I I, um, I, I see Jet in a web van sort of uh, format in my eyes. I don't see how um, one is just shocking, right? The business model change in 30 days during fundraising that that's a bit shocking to me as an outsider. It's always a warning sign. Like what happened? Uh, this yeah. was planned for God knows how long. And then, Oh wait, we're not going to do that. And then secondly, I'm not sure as some data leaked about the retention retention doesn't look that great. 
uh, in fact, it looks you know pretty low. And and it's a fact, right? Like, why if you're a prime customer and you can get everything in a day or two or two hours, the biggest selection possible? Why exactly? Why would you go to Jet? I just don't. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you do that? Because if you can navigate a way more complicated checkout process, you can save eighteen cents. Oh, so everybody else can't. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, those 16 cents I save on the returns and the two cents on the processing fees, I think Prime saved me a lot of time, which is worth way more. Yep. And Prime now gives you a discount on your student loan. So that's tough to match. Did you guys? I just, I just, Scott, I, I want to hear Scott's opinion too, because I know Scott likes it. I want to hear this because I'm just like shocked. I've tried to buy stuff on it. I just can't get to the point of actually, I would rather buy something on Walmart. That's a, I know that's controversial for you. So, so I start at this kind of 30,000 foot view. And if you think about the eBay and Amazon business model is a 10 to 15% take rate. And they're, they're kind of, in a way, they're innovators delimit around that. They, they can't really, Amazon may be able to, but eBay definitely cannot, could not face an environment where they had to knock that in half or something. They would, they would go out of business. Um, you know, eBay also can't go build fulfillment centers because they've got Wall Street addicted to their, 85 to 87% gross margins. Um, but then I look at Tmall and the the power of Tmall, which is part of Alibaba, as you know, uh, is that it has a 4% take rate. So that that enables their sellers to offer much lower prices. So, so I think Jet is kind of like, it, that's an interesting area to go try to innovate against eBay and Amazon in a U.S. marketplace. And I, that's what I like most about Jet is this kind of, I think there is this little wedge there where if you can have, if you can start a business that by its DNA has a lower take rate and it can survive on that lower take rate and you can pass the savings on to consumers, then there's something there. I think that's the chink in Amazon, maybe Amazon's, but definitely eBay's armor. And, you know, eBay's, you know, if you could get, 20 billion of their 60 billion in GMV. That's, that's a big business. So that, that's what question intrigues me about, about jet and, and uh, just knowing the entrepreneurial team there, I think they'll, if they have the runway, they'll, they'll figure out that angle. Um, the question is, do they have enough runway? So we tried, you know, years ago when I was at eBay, we tried to take a segment of our sellers and make their final value fee, nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Like almost nothing. And tried to see if they would improve the price and how that would result in better demand from the customer side. Mm-hmm. And the economics were not overwhelming at the stage where it made sense to do that across. As you know, eBay has different take rates for different sellers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just wasn't enough to sway customers from coming to Amazon versus eBay. So I think that's where my shock to the system is with all the marketing money that Jet's spending. How will the economics ever work? I, if you order a bottle of uh, a case of water, how are they shipping that? They must be losing 8 to $10 on that thing. And in the end, how long can that continue? Not long. Yeah, yeah. You know, the... Uh... A lot of these models, you you have to start, you know, their whole model is predicated on getting that basket size up. And, you know, we've, we've seen data that they're, they're making some moves there. Um, You know, I don't know how it scales and they have more data than we do, obviously. 
Yeah, let's see. I mean, I'm hoping every e-commerce company that's raised money that survives, so it's good for the whole industry and the ecosystem. I'd love to see the success, but uh, I'm extremely skeptical. Got it. Yeah, I might uh, split the baby between the two of you. I... I I'm, I was excited for Jet. Um, I certainly like the idea of uh, smart people raising money and trying to invent new models. And and uh, you know we'd certainly like to see some learnings and and takeaways from those new models that we can apply uh, across the industry would be great. The my at the end of the day, my two problems with Jet, which keep me from being very bullish, is number one, it's just too complex of a customer experience so like in my mind even the the classic e-commerce customer experience that we all offer on our sites today has a lot of cognitive load in it and i think that keeps a lot of people from shopping as much um as we'd all like them to and you know part part of the jet model is to put more of the supply chain decisions in the hand of the customer and while that sounds great in principle in practice i think that complication and confusion just limits their potential market. Um, so, you know, I, I was optimistic about it. I, you know, I, I'll continue to to root for them. But uh, when I look at the complex checkout experience, I'm not I'm not sure um, that I can get super excited about that. And then the one bummer for me is also the cool thing. Like, it's great that they've raised a bunch of money and that they're doing a moonshot. But I I get really tired of people saying, "Hey, there's no good investments. There's no money to be made in e-commerce." Um, because nobody can uh, start a new business from scratch and knock Amazon off in a year, right? And it just—it seems to me that's I, a silly premise. Like, I don't think you need to beat Amazon in order to be successful in the space. Yeah, and I mean, a Dollar Shave Club proved that, and so have other other vertical retailers. But I, I think the bigger challenge for me is that Amazon has reached a scale today as a platform Platform, and Scott, you know these numbers better than anybody in the industry, that it is well beyond imagination when it comes to share online and eyeballs and the whole ecosystem for Prime, mm-hmm. that if perhaps Jet raised this money seven, eight, nine years ago and did this, potentially I could see something maybe perhaps today. I, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Another one is when you look at the demographics of Prime, and you probably know this from your time at Amazon, it, it skews very high end. You know, so the top seventeen percent of folks make one hundred twenty five k as a household, and Amazon Prime has these are all survey data points from Wall Street, but I, I think they're accurate. It has eighty percent penetration. Then as you come down to kind of sixty five, eighty five household income and lower, it gets into the you know the twenty percent range. So, so there is a I, I do think what's interesting is there's this big chunk of of you know, this next wave of people coming online and doing their shopping online are in those demographics. And, you know, maybe it's Jet and Walmart, maybe one of the dollar club kind of folks, um, you know, kind of battle it out for that audience. And, you know, and Amazon will also have a, you know, they'll have a foot in there. Um, remains to be seen, you know, who's going to win that piece. Yeah, I, I think the real key thing, and I agree with you, I think the real key thing is will Amazon demographic go further down? And the introduction of the $9 a month impact that lower demographic customer. And if it does, and it becomes a flexible program, I th- think everyone's in trouble at that point. Because yeah. today, the, you know, the food stamps and the cash customer and the, you know, the, the, that customer is still Walmart. But mm-hmm. who's to say that stays that way? Yep. 
Yep. Time is so, certainly yeah. gonna so, gonna tell on all that. Um I did want to change topics back to staples for a second because one of the things I always think of when I think of staples is that you were one of the first retailers to launch all of these or a innovation lab at all. And now I feel like you have a assortment of labs um, and it, it makes me just curious. I'd love to hear your philosophy about how you, you instill innovation in, in a very large, well-established company like staples and, if you feel like you have a successful model and what, what listeners might be able to take away from the Staples uh, innovation model? Yeah, great question. So uh, when I arrived three years ago, I have to say that uh, it, it was uh, incredible support from our CEO and our, uh, you know, our, our board, our, uh, all the folks in the executive uh, committee in helping us do this. But there were a couple of factors that led to opening the innovation labs and, and also running them separately outside of the, the mothership, which was one, the talent. Uh, we're no longer in negative unemployment when it comes to engineering, uh, and it's we're at a point where you can't it, it, you have to you can't dictate terms to these people. You have to go where the talent is versus the opposite, unless you want to you know hire mediocre talent. So we went where the talent was. So we said, okay, well we, we want to be on the West Coast. Where do we want to go? So we made a bunch of acquisitions: one in uh, San Mateo, California; one in Vancouver, BC, and then we opened our development lab in Seattle. We did that for multiple reasons. A, we were able to recruit people that we wanted. Uh, secondly, we had a, uh, a process in which we allowed them to do hackathons and other things that are slightly separated from the main corporate environment just because they're a little bit open-minded. They have the opportunity to go do things differently rather than being bogged down with you know, a matrix or uh, any kind of bureaucracy that they have to deal with just because they're sitting there in the middle of you know, thousands of people. And, and third is just uh, being able to see other startups in the West Coast. It allowed us to have the flexibility to meet with, you know, we work with 30 plus, I would say, startups today. We encourage working with startups more so than we do with enterprise. You know, we avoid the big behemoths as much as possible and try to work with the smaller companies up and coming. Um, and they have worked out really well for us. If we were sitting out in Framingham, it's just a little harder. But I have to say a lot of support has gone in from our executive team to allow that to happen. And they've seen the success. They've seen what it's done for us. We couldn't have built Exchange. We couldn't have built our omnichannel offerings. We couldn't have built a, you know, a world-class kiosk business, which today is hundreds of millions. Uh, and it was you know, very small. None of that was possible without having the engineering talent that we acquired in Cambridge and Seattle and uh, California and you know, our print-on-demand business out of uh, Vancouver. Gotcha. And did you find, was it difficult to sort of change the Staples culture to get people comfortable working with some of these smaller, lesser known partners and vendors? I feel like in a lot of big enterprises, there's this like these institutional antibodies that, you know, make it really hard to do business with them if you're not a a big, well-established vendor. Yeah, it's like eBay, right? You go to eBay, unless you're charging millions of dollars, they don't like working with you with all the consultants. But I think that that I'm that, sending a note to the Razorfish business development team right now. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Fire up the PowerPoint machine. <laughs> I think there isn't a company probably that doesn't do business with them. It's in terms of consulting, but uh, you know, jokes aside, I think that it was a challenge initially to convince the internal folks that look, listen, this is, this is how we can do this. I'll give you an example. We work with a company called boomerang. Um, I knew guru for many years. He'd worked for me in the past and he started on this journey to go start a, company that does price intelligence, scraping, matching, and selection parity uh, management. And guess what? We did a, we did a t- 
test with them. We did a brief sort of primer and went down the path of 90 days to show us what you got. They blew the doors down compared to what we were getting from our quote unquote consultants that were telling us what we already knew. Um, and that's when, you know, you got to put some runs on the board. And if you can put the runs on the board, you get the teams to come along. And then when you see the cost structure, right, it's so much, so less expensive working with startups and the speed and agility. It's a different ballgame. So that helped us, but none of that would have been possible if we, you know, we work with ShopRunner, we work with Boomerang, we work with dozens and dozens of startups today. And, you know, we work with a company called Yapo that does our reviews and uh, it's a long list that I probably don't remember fully. But it allows us to be also faster and iterate quickly versus waiting for these large release cycles from, you know, the typical IBMs and Oracles. That so is, my takeaway from that is all the vendors could charge more. Is that kind of the is that the takeaway? <laughs> if they give us if they give us the margin we're looking for, yes. Okay. <laughs> if the margins are not there, then no, it's free for all. <laughs> Pazel's gonna be like, um, none of our vendors are allowed to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Luckily, no one does listen, so you're totally safe, Pazel. Feel free. Yeah. To- yeah. Give away Definitely more no vendors. You're totally safe. Give away more secrets. I mean, two takeaways I have from that story. Like, number one, I feel like that's one loophole. The one way you can work with a very big company, even if you're a tiny startup, is if your founder's first name is Guru. Like, well, you know, it has, he does have one of the coolest names in e-commerce. He does. He does, and he writes some nice reviews on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take things. So we've talked a lot about the past and kind of like where you guys are now. Um, and just generally on the industry, not even, I don't want you to reveal any super secret staple stuff. Although if you do, that's fine too. Um, you know, what, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on the show looking at augmented reality, virtual reality, drones, 3d printing. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of really cool technology out there. Consumer behavior is changing faster than ever before. What are some of the things you get excited about? Uh, and, and where do you think the future of e-commerce goes? How do we, how do we go from 10% to 90%? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about 90%, but I think definitely, you know, multiples higher than where we are. I'm excited about uh, conversational commerce. I like the concept of being able to text and get what you want and get answers quickly. So the bots and, you know, we're testing with Facebook and others. And that's interesting because uh, I don't know if you remember uh, the startup now. The name is also uh, Fetch. I don't know if you remember Fetch. Mm -hmm. Uh, back in the day where you could text what you want and they come back with a bunch of results. Conceptually, it was like a Cosmo, too early for Mm -hmm. its time, but the right methodology, right thought process, just Mm -hmm. too early. Uh, Also, like in Alexa, right? So uh, my son, he's four years old. He plays the music he wants on Alexa and tells it what to do. And the fact that a child four years old can interact with this device today with the AI that's available is super exciting because you can imagine what's going to happen 10 years from now. Uh, it doesn't know what a website is, right? Just is interacting through voice. Yeah. So um, very ex- excited about voice, very excited about the AI powering, you know, these chatbots and conversational commerce. And also VR to some degree, right? Like clothing and, and virtual reality around, you know, how you do fitment and other things. Mm-hmm. I think those are super interesting. And, and it's going to happen quickly. It's not going to take as long as it did with, you know, desktop to mobile. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, we'll be surprised. 
Yeah. How about um, another one in the B2B area that comes up a lot is Internet of Things, you know, where there's a lot of flavors for this. There's like, you know, uh, RFID tags on things. So, you know, I can imagine your larger corporate customers, that would be pretty interesting. So they would know, you know, they could they could do instant inventory without ever having to go visit every device and that kind of thing. Do you guys, is that an area of interest for, for, for you guys? Absolutely. Uh, can't disclose too much there, but definitely our, we have a team called Applied Innovation in Seattle that uh, is part of my team. And these are all the things that we're discussing right now, including the staples, you know, obviously the staples button and uh, uh, other associated uh, things we're doing with uh, the likes of uh, Watson and others to, to power not just inventory integrity and, and knowing where, when, how to replenish, but also to be proactive about some of the messaging with the customer. So yes, uh, we're, we're excited about that. Very cool. And then you guys, I remember um, when you first went to Staples, one of the first things you did, if I'm remembering right, is you took, you kind of took the mobile team, the mobile app team, and you, you put it in that innovation group, right? And mm-hmm. cause that, that's an interesting kind of thing because a lot of times you're seeing that come out of the incubation group. And it's kind of like almost, you know, for most retailers, it's getting more traffic than the website. I don't, I don't know about you guys, um, but it's kind of like, I thought that was an interesting move because most, most companies are going the other way. They, they incubated it in a lab or an innovation group. And then now it's kind of become mainstream. Uh, and one of the first things you did is you put it kind of into the lab. What, what's, what's going on with that? Yeah, we put it into the lab. A uh, so so first to answer your question, traffic. We're still B two B, so you'll see that uh, our adoption of mobile is slightly behind the rest of the industry. We're still about thirty forty percent mobile, uh, but you know it's it's increasing significantly over time. Uh, as far as moving it out, we you know when I arrived, you can imagine we were running off of a, a proxy on a desktop when the, the first app. So that wasn't scalable, right? We had to we had to build our APIs to make it super easy to go launch different types of products. We took it into the lab because our mobile app and mobile web experience became the testing ground for everything new. If you couldn't do it on desktop, we did it on mobile and kept it completely separate. Now it's reached a point where it's sort of one and the same, but initially it really helped. Like we tested a lot of omni-channel. Our omni-channel activity is actually more impressive off of mweb than it is off of desktop mm-hmm. and some of these our ability to test and learn on mobile was faster just because of the way uh, the team operated and we wanted it to be separate initially but you're right uh, i mean ultimately the, to the customer it's all one thing and we have to design our organizations around the customer view but Initially, it was just one of those things that we had to do and allow for, A, ramping up the staff, too. In the, in the innovation lab, you can ramp up the right staff, get them onboarded, build the APIs to have all the feature functionality. We still don't have returns, right? We don't have returns on our, on our app. Like, these are things that we, basic things that we need. And uh, because of the long life cycles, as you know, at retailers, some of these things take time. So we took it out and tried to build things faster. Got it. You know, one one curiosity here, uh, a lot of times I work with retail clients, and in my opinion, they way over-invest in their app. Um, like, you know, so they're maybe not the world's most powerful brand, and they don't have good reach with that, their app, and they, they end up not investing enough in that sort of native mobile experience. In your case, like, over your tenure, like, you moved off of that sort of scraped proxy site and you now have one of the best native mobile experiences out there. I actually use your mobile checkout as sort of a best-in-class example of a, a really low-friction 
mobile checkout. So, hey, congratulations on that. Thank um, you. But the the interesting thing is, I would have guessed because of your high um, mix of B two B that maybe an app would make more sense for you because those those B two B shoppers would potentially be higher frequency, more loyal shoppers that might benefit from an app. And it's yeah, that's that's a great question. So we try to make it frictionless, as you know, Apple Pay, all that. We put as much as much uh, burden on us versus the customer. The customers that do use our app are very, very loyal Staples customers. The challenge is the B2B space is not quite ready for mobile today. They're ready in the services industry, such as Concur and you know travel, but they're not quite ready when it comes to products. However, we're prepared for them to be ready. That's why we're, you know, we've got our Staples button, easy button, we've got um, voice and text and whatever way they want to communicate with us, we're building around that. But I also thought that we would have more adoption, more usage from everyone. But the challenge in this landscape, as you know, is if you don't use the app every single week, at least, or every other day or something like that, the real estate is quite expensive on that phone. And users keep apps that are absolutely critical to their business. So our most loyal customers actually have the app and they are very frequent customers and they are way higher conversion than any of our other mobile properties. But increasing that number of users is the bigger challenge because desktop still rules B2B. It just does. Hmm. One last question. Um, What's going to be big in back to school season this year? Um, a, we're hoping that we can delight everybody with our, you know, customer promise on pricing. Uh, as you've seen some of our ads, we we're, we're driving as much uh, traffic as possible to every channel. Uh, we want to offer the best possible deals to our customers. Very similar to last year. We had a pretty successful back to school last year too, starting early as always. Uh, the key difference is going to be, we want to drive a lot of click and collect this year. Because that whole checkout experience, as you can imagine, is not one that we want to encourage. Um, where there's, I don't know if you've seen lines out of the door, but uh, in Redmond, Washington, or Bellevue, where I go, the lines are very, very long. But if you can do click and collect and pre-order everything or have it shipped to you the next day, we prefer that transaction over anything else. So big push for Omnichannel. Awesome. Very cool. Uh one interesting thing to me about that that back to school experience is like I'm sure there's a big chunk of users that just don't like the hassle and you know would prefer online to avoid the congestion in the store but back to school does feel like one of those occasions that to some subset of your customers they actually enjoy the experience of back to school shopping and that it's somewhat of a family ritual and that you know families like taking their kids in and sort of starting off that season and so it it um, I, I think it, it makes perfect sense that you'd want to focus on an omni-channel experience and make it make it easy for those families that do want to come into the store um, to sort of do their pre-shopping online and, and still get that in-store experience. Absolutely. That's absolutely the experience we want. And with the, with the 110% price match guarantee, which, by the way, people do use, and the one-hour pickup, I think that's what we're trying to drive because they do enjoy, you know, these kids want to come in and look at all this stuff as well on top of what they're doing on Click and Collect. So we definitely don't want to discourage any of that behavior. But at the same time, if the moms want to get in and get out, we want to make sure that they get what they want. It's, I heard a rumor that the customer is in charge now and that we should do what they want. 
<laughs> uh, I think that is uh, that is correct. Well, that's probably a good place to wrap up because it's happened again. We've spent a perfectly good hour of the listeners' time. Uh, Fazel, we're really grateful to you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and certainly appreciate your insights. Thank you, guys. This is great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Vasil. I know you're you're a busy dude, and we really appreciate you taking time to do the podcast. You got it, guys. Have a great week. Yep. Uh, one quick message from our sponsor, the Nat National Retailer Federation. Jason and I are going to be live podcasting at the NRF Shop.org Digital Summit 2016, which this year is in Dallas, Texas, and it's September 26th to 28th. Uh, in fact, we have negotiated a custom discount code exclusively for Jason and Scott Show listeners. The code is Jason, J-A-S-O-N, ampersand, which uh, is that funky little, I don't know, Jason, how would you describe it? It's like a, a, a plus sign with flair. Uh, Scott, S-C-O-T. So that's Jason, ampersand, Scott. And you'll get a 10% discount on the full conference fee if you use that code. We're going to be doing a lot of live podcasting. Jason, I'll be there uh, meeting listeners. So we look forward to seeing you there. The show notes will have more discounts. And if you do want to take advantage of that code, visit Retails Digital Summit, all one word, RetailsDigitalSummit.nrf.com and enter that code at checkout. And we look forward to seeing you there. Happy commercing, everyone. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 